0: I hope you're still in 1 Peter, chapter 2. Uh, we have been looking at this, uh, at the book of 1 Peter, for a couple of weeks now. Actually, we took a, a slight break over the, uh, the weeks of November, uh, but I want to jump right back in, get into 1 Peter, and see if, how much headway we can make uh, tonight and in the weeks uh, to come as well. Uh, we are looking at these letters, First uh, and Second Peter primarily, as letters which have been derived out of Peter's experiences. Uh, We've noted a couple of times uh, that these letters aren't just some teacher or scholar sort of uh, writing about theoretical ideas about Christianity. He's not a scholastic. These aren't scholastic letters. They aren't academic letters in the sense that they are talking about theories of how to be a Christian. These are very much letters that Peter is writing from his firsthand experiences with Jesus and preaching for Jesus. Uh, they are letters that are derived out of his firsthand knowledge of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of this Christ. And that's what I like about them because it they're not letters that are just Whatever he's talking about. They're not theories. They're not abstract ideas. These are real things that he has experienced. He has firsthand knowledge of. And that's why I think he writes with so much passion. The, if you read these letters... Read it, quote, in Peter's voice, if you can imagine what Peter sounded like, or just re- imagine this voice of Peter as coming off of the page because he's writing with passion. He's writing to encourage these churches and encourage them in such a way that they too might live and stand for the truth, for, of the truth of God in their specific location and situation. But this passion, I think, is, is indicative of you can trust in this. These aren't just theories. You can trust in these words. Peter knew what it meant as we go back to chapter 1 verse 3. He knew what it meant as he says there to be begotten again unto a living hope. I think he knew what that means. We've, we've kind of dived into that. We've sort of dissected, I think, what he's talking about there. as He was this one who was denying Jesus. And now he is one who is everywhere trying to proclaim his truth. He was born again unto this hope. This hope, as it says there, of the resurrection. Because he, was too, was born again after the resurrection. And I keep going back to that phrase. That phrase in verse 3 of chapter 1. Begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because I think that this is sort of the primary, the, the, the principal truth or tenet of the faith, if you will, that Peter unpacks throughout the rest of the letter. He's, he's sort of trying to unpack what that means. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be renewed from, from head to toe uh, and have your life totally and utterly changed? How, do, uh, how does someone born again live in such a world that they are suddenly now aware of that they do not belong? How do they, how do they live that way? How do you actually have this tangible hope change what you uh, say and do and how you, how you think and how you act? How do those who are born again uh, uh, balance this, this submission with standing for God? How do we do that in a way that doesn't compromise our own convictions? Well, I think that's what Peter is going to dive into in this really extended passage that I want to kind of keep all of it in mind from verse 11 of chapter 2 all the way to verse 12 of chapter 3. Because really what I think he's doing here is really explaining and giving us a lot and covering a lot of ground on how we can both stand for truth, stand for God, have our lives stand for the holiness of the word and of the, of the word himself, Jesus Christ, and also be submissive and be uh, sort of s- subjected to those that are around us. How do we have this standing for truth and self-deferential love, all of these things in all of these different spheres? Because you notice if you just glance over it, he's covering a lot of ground. He covers our, our conduct as law-abiding citizens. And he covers our conduct as employees, I think. He covers our conduct as husbands and wives, as significant others, if you will. He covers our conduct as God's family. He's, he's covering all these different spheres of life. How does the hope that we know and believe, how does that influence all of those fears? How does it tell us what to do and how to live and how to act and how to think and what to say? That's what he's getting to, I think. How I perceive this passage. And the word that jumps off the page, if you read these sections from verse 11 of chapter 2 through verse 12 of chapter 3, the word that will stand out is that word submit or be submissive. Notice in verse 13 of chapter 2, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Go to verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Go to verse 1 of chapter 3. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, verse 5 of chapter 3. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And then all the way down to the last verse of chapter 3, which says, Who has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. It's clear that this word submit or be submissive is sort of uh, covering the whole. is the theme throughout all of these different sections. How do they go together? How do, they, how do we uh, practice submission to our government, to our master, to our spouse, to each other? In a way that rightly exonerates and, 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 gives, and gives credence to the fact that we have been changed, have been born again. I think that's what he's talking about. In some cases, especially in our current cultural climate, there is a tendency to focus on four verses or five verses. First Timothy two thirteen through 17, in which Peter is talking about our submission to government. And of course, it's right, we are right to read and study these and figure out where we lie on these issues and how we are rightly supposed to practice them. But I think what I want to also do is, is, is make sure you realize that this is encapsulating one point of Peter's entire letter. And that to take it out and to use it to say something that the scriptures do not say is doing an injustice to the scriptures. Because again, this must be examined with the rest of scripture. The best interpretation of scripture is scripture itself. Jesus does this everywhere. I love the fact that we can read Jesus and he's literally interpreting the Old Testament for you. Most notably in Luke 24 where he says, where he is talking to the disciples that he came across on the road to Emmaus. And he takes them through all the law and the prophets and he says, they all point to me. We have our hermeneutic for us. We don't have to wonder how to study the Old Testament. They all point to him. We don't have to be so curious as to how to do it. And again, here, we have to keep all of this together. What is Peter's point through all of this? One little side note that I always find it fascinating to me why I think we can cover these two separate chapters. Don't get so caught up sometimes when you're reading the scriptures about verse markings. Those aren't inspired, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Peter wasn't writing verse 1, and then he wrote verse 1. This was a letter that you would write, like an email, a really long email. These would be really long emails. If you send me an email this long, I probably won't read it. But this is a really long email, essentially, to these churches. And so there was no verse markings. These are there for our benefit as people who are proclaiming the word. They were added after the fact. And oftentimes you can see sometimes... or uh, well, I think this is a really good example of that. He's talking about submission. And then we have this chapter break where it breaks into another topic of submission in chapter 3. I think really these are this is one flow of thought. Talking about the Christian life. By the way, there's a good version. I think you can find a King James Version if that's the version you like to read. But I know there's a really good English Standard Version of the Scriptures that has no verse markings. It just has the book, and you can read it straight through. It's really fascinating to do that because it kind of changes how you read. It's, it's really inter- I have one if you want to borrow it. Um, anyways, just throwing that out there if that interests you. All that to say, I think this is all one thought. This is all one flow of thought that Peter's trying to instill into these churches. How do we evidence the word in our lives in all of these different spheres? And again, going back to our point that Scripture interprets Scripture. Fortunately, Peter gives us a really good moment to shed some light on this scene, especially the scene that we have here, or the words that we have here in thirteen through seventeen, it's talking about submission to government, uh, submit to every ordinance of man. Well, there's a really good scene. Go with me to Acts. Just to give you an idea, I think, of where this dialogue of Peter is coming from. Go to Acts chapter 3. Just kind of overview it, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they they go to the temple at the ninth hour, of course, and they they end up healing this man uh, who was lame from birth. They heal him, and they heal him in such a miraculous way that he doesn't just get up, it says that he leaps up, and he has all of his strength restored. And everyone is marveling, just totally floored at how this man has been healed. And eventually Peter gets up and he preaches, as it says in verse 11, in Solomon's portico, as it is called there he preaches this wonderful message this message of repentance look at verse 19 he says repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before so he's preaching Jesus and his repentance from sin and then suddenly Of course, people don't like how they're preaching. And notice verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, came upon them, that is the apostles, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However... Many of those who heard the, the word believed. And the number of men that came to be about five thousand. What a moving of the spirit this message was. That what that flowed through Peter. You want to talk about passion. Five thousand men. Which is, who knows the, the real number of people that were saved that day, that came to faith as he preached the repentance of sins through this Jesus. But they're arrested. They don't like that they're preaching in this guy Jesus' name. Go down to verse 18 of chapter 4 still. So they called them and commanded them. This is the, the, the Sanhedrin council they have met together and they've decided, you guys can't preach about Jesus and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go, verse 21. They let them go, and they go on, and what do Peter and John do? Well, we know, verse 27 of chapter 5. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, track what's, what's going on. They have this tribunal that has been coming together and they charge. The charge is not that they're teaching. It's not the act of the religious service. It's not the fact that they're meeting in the synagogue and that's what's causing all the uproar. It's that they're teaching in Jesus' name. It's specifically the name that they everywhere want to not be associated with. Notice this one who's leading the council. He doesn't even bring himself to say the name. You're teaching in that name that still remain nameless is essentially what he's saying. I can't even utter it because it's offensive, at least to them. And think about what's going on in this time period. Step back a little bit. Think about what has happened just recently. This is very close to the close of the Gospels. Jesus has been crucified. And remember what he's crucified for? Because he was called an insurrectionist. He was a blasphemer. He had stirred up some people. And so the Romans were everywhere concerned that a coup was going to happen on the Roman government. Because he's stirring up these Jews in such a way. And then the Sadducees and the Pharisees were trying to, to criminalize him. They were calling him a blasphemer or a false teacher. This, my friends, is not necessarily a religious injunction that is happening to the, happening to the apostles. It's primarily a political one. Jesus was an insurrectionist. You're teaching about someone who is a known traitor of the government. A known traitor who has been tried in such a, a heinous way and in such a way that he has been led to be crucified. And here you are teaching his doctrines. We can't have that. You can teach. But just don't teach about that insurrectionist guy. <laughs> just, don't, just don't go around spreading his type of doctrine. And that's what causes Peter to be like... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't help you there. Notice verse 29. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It's basically he's saying, we can't help it. We saw this, and we are charged, we are duty-bound to tell you and tell everyone we know about these things. And again, this doesn't hinder them. (laughs) The threats against them, they're like, it doesn't matter to us. Notice verse 42, and daily in the temple, daily and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus, this is specific, Jesus as the Christ. The phrasing there is really important, I think, because it's not just they're preaching about the so-called Messiah that would come from, uh, that was prophesied in Isaiah, as we were looking at this morning. It's not just this figure that Israel was looking to. They are specifically saying that the guy that was crucified just recently, he is that guy, We saw him, we touched him, we felt him after he was crucified. We were with him in all those days afterwards. And this is why we can't stop preaching. We're preaching Jesus as the Christ for the remission of sins for all who would believe. This is their message. And for them, the apostles, they they are utterly convinced that this message is so important that nothing can thwart it. No injunction laid upon them is going to threaten them from stopping to preach this name. (laughs) So here you have Peter asserting in a very remarkable way an act of disobedience against a law laid down upon him. It was uh, an injunction that he was rightly aware of and said this is worthy of resistance and disobedience. So how are we then to harmonize this scene with what he says back in our letter? Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Well, that's kind of what I want to unpack in two really specific ways. Two ways, I think, that cover all of these different facets of submission here in these two chapters. So the first one is this. How do we harmonize this? How do we uh, submit and stand for God and serve God all at the same time? Number one, by remembering your obligation. Remembering your obligation. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Back in First Peter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may be by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Notice again, he uses those words, sojourners and pilgrims. He calls them out for who they are. Because of their being born again, they are pilgrims, they are nomads. They don't really belong to this world anymore because they have been changed as the elect of God. They've been born again unto a lively hope as we've covered in chapter 1. This is their new identity. The new identity that they have in Christ comes out of their new birth with him. Which then, if you go back to verse 13, we won't read these verses, but it gives them this new calling to, as it says there, be holy as I am holy. This is what you are called to. If you notice verse 21 of chapter 2, this is what he says. Notice, for to this you were called. In verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, knowing that you were called to this. He was reminding of their calling. To what? Verse 11 of chapter 2. To live lives that have, as he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. This is your calling, church. This is your calling as the new born believers of Jesus Christ to what? Abstain from fleshly living and fight for honorable living. That's really what what he's suggesting there. That word abstain, it means to fend off or to hold off. It's literally indicative of a war that you are at with your soul. War on your soul for this honorable living. That's where the battlefield lies. And what's at stake is your testimony before men. So he's saying fight. Fight for this honorable living. And this is an important point that I want to make sure that we keep in our minds. Because the counsel that Peter is here saying is not that this salvation that they have with Christ could be lost if they live dishonorably. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ is evidenced. It is proved by your striving and by your fighting for this honorable living. He's urging them, he's calling them, he's encouraging them to fight for this way to live. Which is to say this, that how you live matters. How you live matters a lot, (laughs) Sometimes I think some people think that uh, you can hear this message preached that because grace is here it doesn't matter how we live. That is a wrong false view a way of looking at what grace is in the Bible. It doesn't, it, it, this is going to take some parsing out, but it matters a lot how you live. And grace is free at the same time. <laughs> it's free and yet it still matters. And I want to, I think he unpacks it here. Because I think what he's trying to say and what he's getting at is this honorable conduct does not earn you salvation. What it does is prove that you already have been saved. One of my favorite writers. He, he, he will always be one of my favorite writers and he's been dead for 200 years. <laughs> Well, maybe not that long, but he was a Scottish, English, uh, a Scottish churchman named Horatius Bonar. And he was, he was the brother, if you know Andrew Bonar, he's his brother. Andrew is a little bit more famous in terms of his uh, theological writing. He's written a lot of biographies and stuff. Or he did write, he's not still alive. <laughs> uh, but anyways, Horatius Bonar was his brother, and he has written some incredible tracts Um, And, in fact, I'll I'll send you out one because it's called The Grace, the Service, and the Kingdom, which I think is where this quote comes from. And, anyways, they're free. You can find them online, by the way. But um, he writes this, which I think is a perfect way of encapsulating what I think Peter is talking about. Horatius Bonar says this. A saint is not one who serves God in order to be forgiven, but one who, having found forgiveness, serves God in love and liberty as a forgiven soul with an enlarged heart. That's, I think, what Peter is saying. You have found forgiveness. And because this forgiveness is so sweeping and so free. We are uh, duty bound in love and liberty to prove that forgiveness before men. By how? By living an honorable life. Conducting ourselves honorably before men. Not to win something but to prove something. To show people in the world just what this remission of sins and this repentance through Jesus can do. This is the word he uses, by the way, in verse 18 of chapter 2. Look at verse 18. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, notice that word, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. He's talking about commendable living, which really, that word literally means live as if you are, uh, uh, how you conduct yourselves in this situation is a, the word literally means a token or proof of grace. That how you're responding in this situation is a token of the grace that lies inside of you. How you live matters. Not because it can earn favor with God, but because you can lose favor with men. There are many, I think, who lose opportunities to talk about Jesus Christ because there's seemingly no difference. There's seemingly nothing that is different. There's a really good example of this recently. A very, very high profile New York City pastor has recently come out and confessed to being unfaithful to his wife. Not just once, many times, unfortunately. He has since been fired from his position. The church has taken good action in terms of that. It's a sad, tragic affair. Tragic course of events. And what's even more unfortunate is that the aftermath of this pastor losing his pastorate, it has revealed so many more shortcomings, not just on his own part, but in this church. So many more faults that need a lot of fixing. The church was apparently kind of gripped to value people who would come in because of their status. And in fact, one person reports who went to this church that there was an exclusive VIP section up at the front of the church. So if you were a celebrity, you could be ushered at the front and be seen, so to speak. (laughs) And it seems as though that this pastor was just slightly more interested in people that were a little bit more famous. He would spend a lot of time with them, so to speak. And all of this brought on this tragic, devastating scenario. Not just for this pastor, but for his family. Being drugged through the headlines. And for what? (laughs) So he could have his notoriety increased. It's it's sad to me. Because uh, at least as a person from the outside. I don't know all the details. But from the outside it looks like this pastor forgot his obligation. As a pastor and as a pilgrim of God. He forgot what it meant. To live differently. As it says here to live honorably among men. And in fact one this person wrote a sort of reaction piece if you will and this person is not a christian this these words listen to how these words sting and they come from a person who is not religious they make that known in the article this person writes this talking about this situation i am not religious so it is not my place to dictate to christians what they should and should believe should not and should believe Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share, listen to this, if they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks like very much as if they want to become more like me. Ooh. That stings, and I think it should. It should sting for many Christians who feel like they can get so close to the line of where the world draws their line and stay, still say that grace is covering me. To me, this speaks volumes that many, I'm not just talking about archers, but in the wide spectrum of evangelicalism, so to speak, have forgotten what Peter is here talking about. To have your lives be conducted honorably before men. Why? So that they can see and be glorified by God in the day of visitation, that they can see what this change does in the hearts and lives of men, so they can see the glory of God in the change of the lives of sinners. You don't do it to try and win rewards with God or kind of earn your forgiveness, earn trophies. We're not earning trophies by living holy. We're proving to other sinners that this is what grace can do. I think, at least me, this is, it makes me take stock of my life when I hear those words. I read that article and I was, <laughs> I gotta take inventory of my life. <laughs> is is how i'm living attracting people to church or repelling them do they see a difference enough of a difference in me to be saying i, I want more of that i remember i was at a conference many years ago and i forget the, and, uh, the i forget the exact this just came to me i forget the exact words of his illustration but this one speaker was talking about this very thing that the church isn't this like stoic group of people that just live by the rule books. And, and we, that's not really what grace and forgiveness is. Grace and forgiveness should make us so joyous and celebratory that people are peering through the window saying, I want to be invited to that party. And living honorably is how we do that. We are showing to the world this is the joy and the peace that you can have in this guy his name is Jesus he alone can give it to you and we should have want we should be wanting to have people looking through our windows saying I want some of that This is the obligation I think that Peter is everywhere talking about here in these verses in these words live lives of honor before men. We have an obligation to live like Christ, to have our testimonies almost be like magnets that are drawing people in, drawing people to us. This is our calling. Again, as Peter has here said, this is our calling before men. You were called to this, to be Jesus's representatives. We reflect him. So this is, this is, I think, what he's trying to say. Having a life, a life that is honorable before men. This affects how you respond to your governors, to your bosses, to your husband, to your wife. This affects how you are everywhere interacting with each of these different spheres of life. You want men to look at you and say, there is a change in that person's heart. They have a courage and a confidence and a faith. And I think this is exactly what Peter demonstrates back in Acts 4 and 5. If, you don't have to go there, but if you, if you look at those chapters, Peter is preaching about Jesus. Again, it's a thing that was, he was arrested for wrongfully. But when he's arrested by these men, does he riot? Does he stir up a protest and a march? Does he, uh, does he try to resist it through force? No, he humbly accepts what they are uh, actually called to do. And he submits to their authority. And then when he is asked, actually, go with me to chapter 4. I'll keep my place there. Go with me to chapter 4 because the very first time he is brought before them... He he doesn't really speak until he's spoken to. Verse 19, or look at verse uh, 18. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot help this message. Notice, he's appealing to their understood um, understanding, so to speak, of God. This tribunal would be quick to say that they don't disbelieve in God. They just disbelieve that this Jesus was the Messiah. And as Peter is saying, we have this message from God. Are you going to say that we need to listen to you more than to God? And this council would be sheepishly have to say, no, we're not going to say that. <laughs> They, they, Peter appeals to a higher jurisdiction, a higher authority. He says that's the authority we must listen to, and he demonstrates here a very uh, unco- perhaps uncomfortable truth, which is what he says here in verse thirteen of chapter two of First Peter that as we are submitting ourselves, it, we it, this submission is called to the submission to institutions. Notice he says, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man. The word ordinance is a very interesting word because it's not, doesn't mean law. Actually, it's more indicative, more suggestive of office of government, so to speak. Submit yourself to the offices that are over you. Which is what Peter demonstrated. Until he was called into question and responded with authority. Notice, he's demonstrating how to, uh, how to disobey and obey and be submissive and stand for truth all at the same time. <laughs> Lots of things to keep in the balance. But Peter's counsel here. Is that God's will is not accomplished through, uh, through uh, revolution or through activism or any of those things. It's, it's accomplished as he says in verse 15. Go to 15 of chapter 2. He says it's through silently doing good. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God. That by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. But as bond servants of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. He's calling these people, these churches, to this life of sort of faith that is held in tension, of submitting and yet standing at the same time. You see, many Christians in this day and age were Christians, I'll say were quick to use the freedom that they were announced in Christ as sort of an excuse to revolt. They were quick to say, this means we can resist every form of tyranny, and we can actually work to overthrow these offices because they are, they are not true, they are not right, they are not good. Read Paul. Read rest of Peter, and read all of the apostles, and read Jesus himself. <laughs> They are everywhere say the same thing, that the the governments are in there for our good. But that doesn't mean everything that they do and say is good. And that doesn't mean everything that they do and say are things which we have to follow to the letter of the law, so to speak. He's saying submit to this office, but hold intention. Yes, this hierarchy of faith. Notice he says in verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. It's suggestive of this, this sort of hierarchy of obligation. You have an obligation to your brothers and sisters first for love. You have an obligation to your God and Father who has elected you, who has born, have you birthed you again, so to speak, through his son Jesus Christ, as his children to fear him. That's the hierarchy we are to follow. His authority supersedes any other authority that we listen to, that we adhere to. Because his glory alone is what matters. His honor alone is what drives us. It goes back again. This is our obligation to have lives that are conducted honorably among the Gentiles. Keeping him first. Him preeminent. Him foremost. Because that's what Jesus did. And this is the second thing. We, we have all of these things intention, submission, standing, service by remembering our obligation, and number two, by following our example. By following our example. Because we come here to these verses at the close of chapter two, which I think encapsulate exactly what Peter's talking about. For to this, he says, you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. They should follow in his steps. And he goes on in the verses that Pastor Nathan read. So in this, and he sort of explodes, if you will, in the summation of Jesus' life. Which uh, are, is very much influenced by Isaiah 53. Which again, if you, if you want to know and jot this down. Because he's always being influenced by the Old Testament in this letter. And here's another good example of that. But the precise point that Peter is making comes to the surface in these words. As he's saying that all of this is what we are called to. That even when you are uh, suffering wrongfully. You endure knowing what? That your father is the judge of all. This is what Jesus exemplified for us. Knowing that his father Was the one whom he served. This is what Peter is saying. Follow Jesus as your example. As he uses that word. Leaving us in an example. word literally means a copy for imitation. This is Christ. Yes, as he says in verse 24, this is Jesus who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Notice how he connects this, this perfect and very important doctrine of substitution that Jesus died for our sins with it in his own body on the tree. And that is what informs how we live. Notice he says because of that substitution, because of Jesus bearing our sins... That's why we live for righteousness. Because of this substitution, that substitution informs our imitation. This is our model for life, he's saying. And this again comes from Peter's own life. Go with me. I I, I want to try and finish the rest of this. I'm keeping you a little bit longer than I intended, but we'll finish this. Would you go to John 21. Because he's calling this church, follow Jesus. Follow in his steps. Use your lives as you are here in faith to imitate his model that he left for us in the gospel. We come to these words in John 21. And we have that wonderful scene between Peter and Jesus as he is restored We'll just, we'll, I'll just read all these verses. They're just good. Verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to, him again, a, said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him, A third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you are younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. He spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. I love what Jesus there indicates. He's saying, when you, were, when you were younger, you were everywhere thinking and doing things in your own way, you went where you wished to do. And this is that headstrong Peter that we have in the Gospels. He spoke before he thought. <laughs> He had foot and mouth disease constantly, and this headstrongness was something that Jesus wanted to kind of capture and funnel because he knew it would be powerful for the gospel. He says, Follow me. And when you do follow me, you have to believe in me and trust in me because it's going to lead you into a place where you didn't think you would be. Which eventually, if tradition holds true, that Peter was crucified eventually upside down for his ministry for Jesus. But I love those words follow me. Same root word that we have, by the way, in First Peter 2, that we are to follow Christ. And the word literally means to tread in someone's footsteps. To follow in the same steps that they have taken. And that's your path for life. This is the life of faith. It's a life of imitation. It's like a son copying his dad. Looking up to him, wanting to make sure he copies all of his every move. And the copy isn't always perfect. But that's not what matters. What, it's not that this son is perfectly imitating his dad. The dad is just so delighted in the fact that this son is showing affection by wanting to imitate him. That's faith, I think. That God is just so delighted. <laughs> He gets such joy and delight when his children try to copy his son, Jesus Christ. No matter how imperfect that copy is. No, despite how kind of broken sometimes that imitation is. And I think this is Peter's counsel to this church. This is your privilege, church, to follow Christ. To model your life after this Jesus Who perfectly embodied humility and deference and care. Yes, even for those who were trying to kill him. Think about Jesus' life as he says here. Who committed no sin. Who nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But committed himself to him who judges righteously. He committed himself to his father. He knew that this mission was God-given, he says, and that's what drove him. He did not riot when he was put in chains. He did not go to Golgotha kicking and screaming. This is Jesus who shows us the perfect way to endure undeserved suffering. And how we are to relate to others. Namely in a love that is self-deferential and self-sacrificial. Do we do this perfectly? Not a chance. And that's why we are entrusting our lives to Christ alone. Who bore our sins. Which then informs how we imitate our father. But we entrust our lives to this Christ. Who suffered on our behalf. Who suffered Perfectly. So then that way our suffering is then upheld by his because he's the one that is victorious for us. As he says, therefore you were like sheep going astray but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is Jesus. His model of submission and service and standing, as it says there, committing himself to the one who judges righteously. Is what we are called to as well. and all of these varying spheres. This is what the church. This is the lifeblood of the church I would say. Notice verse 8 of chapter 3. And then I'll be done. Down through verse 12 as he says there. Finally all of you be of one mind. Having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary blessing knowing that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing for he who would love life and see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit let him turn from evil and do good let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers but the face of the lord is against those who do evil here we have these encouraging words Which I think are directly spoken to the church. We do all of this. All of this submission and standing and service for what purpose? To be of one mind. It's the unity of the church. The furtherance and strengthening of God's people. That we show love and respect to them. As we are rightly loving and respecting our Father, having our lives conducted honorably and commendably before men, why to give glory to this God who redeemed us, who snatched us out of sin and saved us by his glorious grace? This is the life of the Christian. It's a life of faith, (laughs) it's a life of imitation. This is how we stand for the truth. Yes, even in trying times. Even in times like these. Let us pray.